Good morning, Sanctuary. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, Side note, Jason, wherever he went, every time we sing Brother, um, I happen to know the guy who wrote that song and happen to be related to him. Uh, He is my brother-in-law. And one day, not too long ago, a few weeks ago, us brothers had a bit of a revelation that that song can go two ways. (laughs) When you look in the face of your enemy and see your brother, there's definitely a way that you can look in the face of your brother and see your (laughs) enemy. (laughs) Anyway, well, isn't it like God to give us render unto Caesar, (laughs) a text about taxes just a couple of weeks before an election. It feels like a real gift, a real 2020 gift. There are, there are a couple of big ideas from these texts that I wanna share with us today, I wanna offer to you all today. But first, I do want to say just how grateful I am for Sanctuary and for this community. I'll be the first to admit that I do not know exactly what our future looks like, especially as we start moving toward, hopefully, a post-COVID world. Um, And that not knowing is okay. It's a bit stressful, to be sure, but it's okay. And it's, it's okay because I don't think that we're supposed to have this all figured out. But we just trust God. We commit to being a people of grace and peace, and we love one another into the great unknown. So all that to say, I'm glad to be on this journey with you people. (laughs) And especially I'm glad that a place like Sanctuary exists. And I'm glad that Sanctuary exists in a place like Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I'm glad that she's home to so many. You know, every week, those of us who preach, we take our cues from what's called the lectionary. And we've been doing this for a number of years, but as a reminder, this is a collection of texts. And there's a few reasons why we follow this kind of rhythm. One is so that over the course of a few years, we are exposed to the big themes, the big narratives that are a part of scripture. And we get exposed to all of that over the course of three years. But it also is supposed to save you all. It's supposed to save you from us just preaching about whatever we happen to want to preach about. Um, It's supposed to be some kind of guardrails, right? Where you're protected from having to listen to us just preach whatever we decide we want to preach about. So this week... Like most weeks, I met with uh, some fellow priests and some other pastors to talk through these texts and work out what are some of the big ideas and what are some of the major themes that we're seeing. And I hate to sound like a broken record, but these texts just say so much about who we are. If you've been hanging out with Sanctuary for the past few weeks, it feels like so many of our sermons have been on this topic of our identity and who we are and what kind of people we're called to be. But I think in a world where there is just so much vying for our attention, for our loyalty, for our money, for our our focus and our energy, any of those things that may fly under the banner of idols, 
in our lives, those things that try to dislodge the place that God holds in our lives, we better know who we are. There was a movie that came out a few years ago. You may have seen it. It was uh, based on a book called Wonder by R.J. Palacio. And this story is about a little boy, and he has a severe facial deformity that requires a number of surgeries to try and correct. And in one part of this movie, this little boy, his name is Augie, he's upset because some kids had made fun of him for how he looked at his school. And his mom, who's played by Julia Roberts, she tells him, you are not ugly, Augie. To which he responds, like all of us would, you have to say that. You're my mom. (laughs) But her response, I think, carries so much of the kind of responsibility that we carry with one another. She says to him, no, because I'm your mom, it counts the most because I know you the most. There's something about knowing who we are in light of the community of faith that helps us weather the changes and the chances of life. Right now, my wife, Elizabeth, and I were getting ready to move um, on Tuesday at around two o'clock. We may or may not have snacks available. Um, She's 30 weeks pregnant. This is not an ideal time to be making some of these decisions, but here we are. And we also have our seven-year-old daughter, Nora, who has had lots of questions about this whole process, about this move. And of course she does, right? I mean, this is a big deal to a seven-year-old. We've lived in this house for three, almost four years. You know, half of her life has been lived in this place. And so her questions are things like, Is my bed going to come with us? Is that mirror coming? Or what about my books? You know, she wants to know these things that have been here and been these concrete, stable parts of her life. Are they coming with us? And when things are changing, we want to know what is constant. What are those things that we can depend on, that we know are going to come with us? What can we depend on? So a couple of thoughts about these texts today. First, as, as simple as this is, I think it's important for us to remember not just who we are as the people of God, as people of faith, but to also remember who it is that claims us. In one of our Old Testament texts today, we find the prophet Isaiah speaking to Cyrus. And Cyrus is the figure, he's the one who will eventually lead the Israelites out of Babylonian captivity. This has been 400 plus years in the works. And Cyrus is the one who's going to lead those people. And God says to him, I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I surname you. Though you do not know me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. This is his word to Cyrus. So here is God. He's on the brink of the Israelites being set free from their, again, 400 plus years of captivity in Babylon. And he says to them, hey, you may not remember me, but I remember you. It's, I know it's been a while, but I know exactly who you are. I was the one who named you. Uh, for any kids still in the room, oh, this is such a 
left-hand turn we just took. If you've ever seen the Lego Ninja movie, there's this scene where the main character, his name is Lloyd, and he's discovering, he's finding out who his father is. And turns out, it's a very like Star Wars kind of plot twist, where the, the villain ends up being his dad. And he sees him, and the villain looks at him and goes, Lloyd? And he says, my, my name is Lloyd. And he goes, it's Lloyd. I think I would know I named you. <laughs> this is the kind of experience we're seeing with the Israelites, right? Where God is saying, no, 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 I'm the one who knows you best. I remember you. I was the one who named you. And not only did I name you, the text says, I surnamed you. Which is not just saying who you are, but it's also saying, this is who you belong to. These are the people who have claimed you. This is not just first name, this is last name. And you can't really change the last name stuff too easily. I can't overstate, I don't think, how important it is to understand that the subject of these kinds of sentences matters infinitely. That it is God who has named you. It is the Lord, the God of Israel, who has given you a name. It's kind of like when we make the statement that Mary is the mother of God, right? It's not so much saying a whole lot about Mary so much as it is saying everything about who Jesus is. When we say that Mary is the mother of God, we're acknowledging that Jesus was born and that fully affirms his humanity. But we're also saying that Mary is the mother of God, which is saying that Jesus is also divine. So in a statement like Mary is the mother of God, which can kind of get under our skin for us Protestants, Mary being the mother of God isn't necessarily saying a whole lot about Mary, but it is saying everything about who Jesus is. When we say that God has named you, it's not so much about what do you call yourself. It's about acknowledging that God is the one who has called you. God is the one who's going to lead you out of Babylon. God is the one who reminds you, I surnamed you. You have a last name that you can't change too easily. So these subjects, they really matter. Another way of talking about this is to say that when we make the statement that Christ is risen, this is good news to us. Now, it's not just good news to us because the risen part, that is part of the good news, but the risen part isn't everything. The good news in a sentence like Christ is risen is that it is Christ who has risen, right? Stalin is risen carries a much different kind of tone. <laughs> so these kinds of, of subjects I think are so important. This issue of being known has been such a deep point of frustration for the people of God throughout history. Not just because we often misunderstand who we are, but because we long so deeply to know who God is. And this is something that does not come to us easily. In another one of our texts today, we find the story of Moses praying to God. And he says, show me your glory. Which is another way of saying, show me what 
you're capable of. Show me what you can do. Show me who you are. And I mean, this story, which I'm sure we're familiar with, is a pretty profound story, but at the very beginning, God says to Moses in Exodus 33, he says, bring up this people. He says to Moses, who's been leading the Israelites, who's been leading the people of God, he says, bring up this people. And in this moment, it doesn't sit well with Moses. And so a few verses later, Moses pushes back and he says to God, you know, if your presence won't go with us, don't take us away from here. If you're not leading us, we don't want to go there. For how will it be known that we have found favor in your sight, I and your people? So he turns this back on God and says, this isn't just a random group of people that we've found together. This people. So these are your people. He says, hold on, you've been talking about this people as if I just invited them all out here to the desert, like a third wheel on a strange 40-year date or something, but I didn't bring them here. These are your people. And he asks, he asks God, he says, how, how will people know that we're your people unless you go with us? And we know this story. God says to Moses, you can't see my face for no one shall see me and live. And so God passes by Moses and covers him with his hand until he's passed by. Now, I think there's a lot that we could say about seeing the face of God, but I'm, I'm always struck by the fact that there's just so much unknowableness about God, about who God is. But just because there is a way in which God is unknowable, we can and do see the face of God. We see God's face in the person of Jesus, which takes us back to our, our gospel text today. We find a pretty gnarly, a pretty diverse group of people here. These people that are coming to trap Jesus. It's the Herodians and the Pharisees. They've teamed up against Jesus. And, you know, the, the Herodians and the Pharisees, there's probably too much that we could say about this that you don't really care all that much about. But let me just say this. They have very different ideas about how to get what they're after. They have a relatively similar political goal, but their means of accomplishing it are very different. So to, to break this down, the Pharisees did not want to give money to the Roman government, to these pagan oppressors. Even having the coins, possessing the coins, would have bumped up against their Jewish law, right? This whole idea of graven images and all that. But the Herodians... They still wanted political independence for the Jewish people, just like the Pharisees did. But they had a vested interest in the Roman government being paid taxes. They wanted to see a member of the Herodian dynasty return to the throne in Judea. And so it's beneficial for them that taxes continue to be paid to the Roman Empire. So you see the tension that exists here with these kinds of people coming together, asking Jesus is it lawful to pay taxes? I'm sure you all wanted to know this. All that to say, they, they represent two sides of the argument. That paying taxes, don't pay taxes, and they come together to Jesus. The trap, of course, is that either way he answers, whether he says yes or whether he says no, he's going to make somebody mad. 
And then Jesus throws this curveball at them and he says, yes, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God the things that are God's. Now, what do we know at this point? Well, we know that the coins had Caesar's face on them. It was an image that was stamped on them to signify not only who Caesar is, but to whom you owe that coin in your hand. What we have to discern as the people of God is when what we're seeing is the face of God and when what we're seeing is the face of Caesar and how to parse these things out. There are plenty of faces that end up being stamped on us. These are other forces and powers that try to claim us from our Americanness or our Oklahoma-ness, our Tulsa-ness, whatever it may be, but this is not the face that is given to us. This is the face that is trying to be stamped on us. In order for us to rightly know ourselves and our neighbor is to see the face of God in ourselves and in our neighbor. Those images that are stamped on us, both by those who do not love us and those who are simply just well-intentioned, those are the things that belong to the world, to Caesar. We can give that back to Caesar. And it's important to point out that what we're not saying is that Caesar has some things and God has others. It's that Caesar takes the things that God has made and tries to turn them into something that is useful. We can give that back to Caesar. We can unburden ourselves in that way. And when we do so, it allows us to receive what it is that God gives to us. We can unburden ourselves from the oppression of Caesar to find the liberation that God offers us. We can unburden ourselves from this inferiority of Caesar to find the God who calls you God's own, God's beloved. God is the one who calls us by our name, as the prophet Isaiah reminds us. The one who gives us our humanity so that we can know him and each other and ourselves. Caesar wants to stamp his name on us so that we have no other name. But we are the people of God who are called to carry the light of the world into dark and broken places. As we start to wrap up, I want to talk about how we carry this light. It's one thing to say, you know, Jesus is the light of the world. We're called to carry the light into the dark and brokenness of the world, but how do we do that? What does that look like for us? Well, this is the issue of holiness. Not something that we often talk about. So how do we live holy lives that mark us in ways that signify we belong to God? Thomas Aquinas argued that goodness, the goodness of God always tends to spread, that goodness itself spreads. And it not only spreads, but it also creates that we believe in a God who is good. And precisely because God is good, this is why we believe that we exist in a created world, that this wasn't by accident, that it's from God's goodness that creation happens, that it spreads. And it spreads when God speaks and it brings life and energy and seeds that are full of potential into the world. The claim that Aquinas makes in Latin, because I know you all want to know Latin, is exitus et reditus. But it's this idea that God's goodness goes out, and as we receive it, our reflex 
should be to respond with goodness. This is how goodness spreads in the world. I think for most of us, this idea of holiness has been mostly about the things that we don't do, the things that we abstain from, those things that we resist, those things that we think will make us unclean in some way. But what if holiness for us is more about what we do? What if holiness is mostly about choosing the good in your life, even when the good is more difficult than the bad? Not letting the good be paled or corrupted in any, in any way. I think if holiness is more about Aquinas' idea, the spreading of the good, that God is always putting out his goodness into the world and our response to it is what matters, then holiness should hold for us the promise of something that looks like new life, that looks like new creation. And in this way, it's not so much the task of the church, of you and me to try and change the world, so much as it is to be the world that is changed by Christ. I don't know what your experience has been, but my experience growing up, especially when it came to this topic of evangelism, we were taught either implicitly or explicitly that it goes something like this, that you are saved, you accept Jesus into your life, you experience some kind of change, hopefully for the better, and then you go and you carry that change and try to get other people to accept Jesus, hoping that they're going to experience some kind of change as well. This is our idea of how we evangelize, how we change the world. And in the circles that I grew up in, there was a lot of pressure on changing the world. You know, are you gonna win your high school for Jesus? Uh, I mean, we had entire nights of the week that were dedicated to this kind of thing, right? Where we had Friday night outreach, we had Saturday night outreach, we had just so much time and energy was given to this idea that we have to go and change things. And we have to get people to change by accepting an idea, by just spitting out facts, but I think a more faithful way to think about evangelism, to think about our job as evangelists, which is something that we are all called to do on some level, is to simply be the people who have been changed by God. That we're not so much responsible for changing the world as being the changed world that exists in this world. Let it cause the question in people's lives. Why do you live that way? Why do you work that way? Why do you respond to people who criticize you in that way? How are you able to speak with grace and with goodness and with patience and kindness? Because we've been the changed people. This is just who we are. If you want to be invited into this, I would love to show you how. But let's not put too much pressure on ourselves to go out and change the world Let's just be the changed world. I think when we are the converted, when we remember that we are the baptized, we are those who belong to the kingdom of God, we live and respond from a place of God's goodness to us. The trick is that when the kingdom of Caesar starts vying for our worship and our attention and our loyalty, what makes the church the church is by simply how we respond as the people of God and not as the people of Caesar. Nikolai Berdiev, you can thank Dr. Green for this reference. 
He's a Christian Russian philosopher from the 19th century. And he says that the great temptation consists in the identification of Christianity with whatever the sort of kingdom of Caesar exists. And that by doing so, we try to enslave the infinite into the finite. He's saying that the temptation that we have to resist is identifying ourselves too closely with any kingdom of Caesar. Walter Brueggemann says it another way. He says that the crisis within the U.S. church has almost nothing to do with being liberal or conservative, but it has to do with giving up the faith and discipline of our baptism, settling for a common, generic U.S. identity that is part patriotism, part consumerism, part violence, and part affluence. That we become more tied to these ideas rather than remembering who we are as the baptized. I've said it just a couple of weeks ago. It's not that the church just has a kind of politic, that we have a way of thinking about how the world is organized or how it should be. We are a politic. We just exist as the people who believe that Jesus is Lord and nobody else is. So you may be tired, (laughs) I know I am, of hearing about identity. But I think we're living in a time when remembering who and whose we are is so important, maybe more important than ever. It may look like we lose at times. It may cause us to make some people mad, like Jesus' response. Didn't really satisfy anyone. But I would rather be faithful to the kingdom of God as the people of God than to sell out my identity for what I might hope to gain this side of eternity. So my prayer for us, sanctuary, is that we would be a people who continue to remind one another that we are the baptized, that our commitments to ourselves and to one another run deeper than political parties or nationalisms or skin color, whatever, but that we carry a shared responsibility as the people of God to be the world already changed by Christ. So may this be true of our community.